1: and Candid Conversations. I am as always your host, Nico Perino. On February 13th, the United States Senate voted to acquit former President Donald Trump of an impeachment charge that he incited an insurrection at a January 6th rally in Washington, D.C., which preceded an attack on the United States Capitol. At the heart of the trial was a dispute over what constitutes incitement, whether Trump's remarks amounted to incitement, whether his remarks needed to amount to the legal standard for incitement to be impeachable, under the United States Constitution. Joining me today to discuss the incitement standard, its history and its application today is David L. Hudson Jr. David is an assistant professor of law at Belmont University. He is the author, co author, or co editor of more than 40 books, and he serves as a Justice Robert H. Jackson Legal Fellow for the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education and a First Amendment Fellow for the Freedom Forum Institute. David, welcome back onto the show.
2: Thanks for having me, Nico.
1: So let's jump right into it. Incitement to imminent lawless action isn't protected under the United States Constitution, under the First Amendment. Why not?
2: Well, the general presumptive rule is that speech is protected, as you know. Of course, yeah. The United States Supreme Court has carved out several narrow, unprotected categories of speech, speech that's essentially considered too harmful and that d- does not meaningfully contribute to social ideas or political speech, or really is, is uh, the, the harm far outweighs the benefits from the speech. And so some of these categories include, for example, defamation. You can't make a false statement of fact about somebody that harms their reputation. True threats, which I think we talked about before, right? Uh, yes, we did. You can't utter a true threat um, which a reasonable person would interpret as, as bodily harm. Fighting words, which the Supreme Court defined as words, which by their very utterance inflict injury or cause an immediate breach of the peace. And incitement to imminent lawless action is really within that same First Amendment family as true threats and fighting words. When I teach this to my students, I, I generally say, let's, let's talk about these three categories in tandem, right? Because they're all related, Incitement to imminent lawless action, fighting words and true threats. They're, if you will, cousins in the First Amendment family. And essentially, the the thinking is that if speech really does incite imminent lawless action, then the harm that is caused far outweighs any benefits from the speech. And it's it's been deemed to be so harmful as to not be protected. But the thing to always keep in mind. Because these categories like true threats and fighting words and incitement to imminent lawless action have been narrowed over time. So the general historical pattern has been that the U.S. Supreme Court sets the standard and then generally it narrows it. And that's essentially what has happened with Brandenburg. Branden, although Brandenburg is a little bit different because the Brandenburg standard, which is the case that created the incitement to imminent Lawless Action Standard, that really was the final product or the culmination of the clear and present danger test that was introduced by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes way back in 1919. And then it's decades and decades later in 1969 that the court uh, decides Brandenburg.
1: So for all intents and purposes, before 1919, I mean, what are we considering incitement under the First Amendment to the United States Constitution? I mean, before 1919, the First Amendment was almost a dead letter uh, in the Constitution. Was, I mean, was, was it discussed or was it thought of before then?
2: You know, it, it, I was just reading uh, John P. Frank, who was a great legal scholar. He actually argued Miranda versus Arizona. the famous 1966 case. He was a great constitutional scholar, and he wrote a book about the United States Supreme Court that was published in 1958. The title is called The Marble Palace. And in in his chapter on free speech and free press, he actually says something to the effect that John Quincy Adams alone, in fighting the gag orders on uh, petitions to end slavery, did more to advocate for freedom of expression than the United States Supreme Court did throughout the, uh, throughout decades and decades, right? I mean, it really was the crucible of World War I. You know, historian Paul Murphy encapsulated it well, right? World War I and the origin of civil liberties. It really wasn't until um, the passage of the Espionage Act of 1917 and the Amendment, the Sedition Act of 1918, and some other developments in constitutional law that actually led to the development of modern first amendment law. And you're absolutely correct. It didn't really take off until 1919 and it was really Justice Holmes's so-called great dissent in Abrams versus United States that set us on the framework for modern first amendment jurisprudence.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the Brandenburg standard. It's a 1969 case and it's a case that was really at the heart of Donald Trump's most recent impeachment trial. Um, you know, it's it involved a Ku Klux Klan group and uh, a Klan leader, Clarence Brandenburg, and <clears throat> I'm kind of paraphrasing from Adam Liptak's summary of the case and discussing the impeachment trial. Uh Brandenburg had urged his followers at a rally to send the Jews back to Israel to bury African Americans and uh to consider revengeance against politicians and judges who were unsympathetic to white people. Now, Liptak explains that only Klan members and journalists were present, um, but because Brandenburg's words fell short of calling for immediate violence in a setting where such violence was likely, the Supreme Court ruled that he could not be prosecuted uh, for incitement. The court ruled that constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press uh, do not permit a state to forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. So there are various prongs to that that test and it seems to be to be a very strict standard how often is it actually met?
2: It's not met very often. It's really only met when you have a speaker speaking to a group of people and there's a result of immediate violence that results from that. And there's clear evidence that the speaker intended for that to happen, right? That, that's really what incitement's about. One clarification as to, to, to what Mr. Liptek said is that the case itself, Brandenburg was prosecuted under an Ohio state law called a criminal syndicalism law. And that law was a relic of the 19-teens and 1920s used to essentially prosecute communist sympathizers But the law itself punished abstract advocacy of subversiveness or crime-breaking. And what the United States Supreme Court said is that this law is unconstitutional because there's a difference between abstract advocacy of law violation and actual incitement to imminent lawless action. And the, the, the weird thing about Brandenburg is that it was a case where there there wasn't an opinion from the Ohio Supreme Court, and there really wasn't much of an appellate opinion at all. It presented the U.S. Supreme Court with a, a tabula rasa, with a with a with an empty slate on which they could craft this new standard. Um, and, and it gave the court a little more flexibility in coming up with a speech protective standard, and the Brandenburg um, standard has been. I think very steady and enduring and it's lasted you know for, for quite some time it was you know it's been been on the books for more than 50 years i think it's important also to understand though that brandenburg applies uh, to more than just criminal prosecution cases so the brandenburg standard at times has been used in civil liability type of situations where for example an individual who has a family member who commits suicide, let's say after listening to music lyrics, you know, like Ozzy Osbourne's Suicide (laughs) Solution. Or the case I think I cite in one of my pieces, uh, Davidson versus Time Warner, where a Texas state trooper was shot and killed by a man who was listening to Tupac Shakur's Tupacalypse Now, which was a great album. (laughs) the, The allegation was that um, the rage that the uh, protagonist sings about or the, that the song talks about caused this man to kill the state trooper. And the Brandenburg standard is often used in the civil context as well. It's, it doesn't always come up uh, just in criminal prosecutions. Well, is it
1: coming up in that DeRay McKesson case? Uh, DeRay is a civil rights activist who was sued by a police officer who was injured by a rock-like uh, object that was thrown during a 2006 demonstration, uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, the, the officer in that case doesn't actually contend that DeRay McKesson threw the object or directed any violence, but instead contends that because he should be held responsible because he knew or should have known that the violence that resulted from the demonstration, which he helped organize, uh, could have resulted
2: in violence. Very, very tenuous, best right? The, 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 The argument by some, right, is the Brandenburg standard is too high. And so what often happens in First Amendment litigation is that the defense will argue for the application of Brandenburg, right? Because it's such a high standard to meet.
1: And that's what uh, Trump's uh, advocates in the Senate trial were doing.
2: Absolutely. But what will often happen in these cases is that the prosecution or the plaintiffs, if it's a civil liability case, they'll argue for another speech category, So, for example, there's a very famous case in First Amendment circles, although it never made it to the United States Supreme Court, the Nuremberg Files website case, where there was a group that posted a list of the names and addresses of doctors who performed abortions. And then when somebody went out and assassinated one of these doctors, they actually drew a line through their names. And so the argument was that this website encouraged people to go out and shoot and kill these abortion providers. Well, ultimately, there was a lawsuit filed by Planned Parenthood against the American Coalition of Life activists who were responsible for this Nuremberg Files website. And the federal district court applied Brandenburg and held that it was protected speech. Well, what did the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals do on appeal? They didn't analyze it as a Brandenburg case. They they analyzed it as a true threat case. Uh, Let me give you one other example. Mm -hmm. Paladin Press versus Rice. Very famous First Amendment case that never reached the U.S. Supreme Court. This is sometimes referred to as the Hitman Manual case.
1: I was just going to ask about this. Yeah,
2: where a guy actually went in and read this book, How to Be a Hitman, published by Paladin Press. And he followed like 30 steps in the book and actually went and assassinated somebody. It was a murder for hire thing for insurance money. And federal district court, I believe, applied Brandenburg and held that the book was protected speech. But the fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals didn't apply Brandenburg and held that it was speech that aided and abetted a crime. So what often happens is that a court will will say, okay, this really isn't a Brandenburg case. This is a true threat case. This isn't a Brandenburg case. This is a fighting words case, right? And, and the reason is, again, from what we've been talking about, Brandenburg is a very speech protective standard, and it's very difficult to meet Brandenburg.
1: So, let's get into the events of January 6. I'm sure our listeners are very interested. And I actually originally intended this podcast to kind of be a debate between someone who thought his speech did meet the Brandenburg standard insofar as it was uh, not protected by the First Amendment standards enumerated under Brandenburg, and someone who who did think it was protected? But I reached out to four different people um, to to try and come on and argue that his speech was unprotected. Uh, three of whom had written very high profile articles defending it, and they um, two uh, most of them declined, and one of them didn't respond to me. So uh, that's why we have you here, David, to kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> analyze the situation for us because you did write an article about this, trying to get the perspectives mm-hmm. of various different thinkers on the topic. Um, So it's January 6th, president Trump is holding his, uh, rally the stop the steal rally, Washington DC. He speaks, uh, for a period of time, I believe it's less than an hour. Uh, and at the end of it, he says, I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make their voices heard. Of course, this comes after months of critiquing the election, saying it was stolen, um organizing his supporters to come to Washington, D.C. to, quote, stop the steal.
0: Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. You know, I say sometimes jokingly, but there's no joke about it. I've been in two elections. I won them both. And the second one I won much bigger than the first, okay? I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today, we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections. But we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I wanna thank you all, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you all for being here, this is incredible. Thank you very much.
1: And then immediately after the rally, um, the march over to the Capitol happens and the events of January 6th, which we're all very familiar with occur. Uh, People die, unfortunately, Uh, there is, the, the proceedings in the United States Senate are brought to a halt for many hours. The Capitol uh, receives a lot of property damage. You have protesters, some of whom are in horns, you know, sitting on the speaker's uh, chair. In uh, I forget if if it was uh, the House of Representatives or the Senate. Uh, a lot of a lot of um, chaos happened that day, and my wife actually works in Congress, so she was not in the building that day. Um, how are we supposed to think about Trump's um, Trump's speech that day? You know, the Brandenburg standard is a very fact-intensive standard. So, what facts would bring would we bring to bear in analyzing whether his speech is protected or is related to what happened afterward?
2: I, I think you have to look at the text of the speech. You know, I mean, he didn't say, "Let's go to the Capitol, break down the barriers, storm in there, and act like." Uh, law-breaking violators. And, I mean, he just didn't say that, right? I mean, he said, let's march on the Capitol. But march to the Capitol, that's that's protected assembly, right? That's freedom of assembly, right? There's a difference between marching peacefully and then what what some of these people did. And it, it's very hard for me to find, from, from looking at the language of the January 6th speech, and even taking into account the month-long rants about you know stealing an election, election fraud—it's—it's it's very hard for me to, you know. Granted, I'm a I'm a First Amendment person, but it's yes. very difficult for me to see how this possibly meets the Brandenburg standard. Honestly, I think what what's what's come about is a lot of people hate Trump, and so they allow their dislike of Donald Trump to essentially adulterate their application of fundamental First Amendment free speech principles.
1: So when we're thinking about you know, the stuff that he says to just take this piece by piece, in the months preceding, you know, he doesn't concede that it'll be a peaceful transfer of power. He uses a language of fighting, uh, which is, of course, often advocacy and protest language that is, is symbolic. That is that in, irrelevant when we're considering the Brandenburg standard and its requirement for the speech to be Likely to produce imminent lawless action, so, so I guess the question is: Do we just need to look at what he said before the violence, or can we contextualize it? I, I think the,
2: we, I think we can contextualize it, but even contextualizing it, uh, I, I have great difficulty in seeing how this rises to the level of incitement. Uh, you know, the language itself just simply does not. he's not saying go terrorize members of Congress and employees there, right? He doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. And when you say you fight for things, I mean, good grief, that's, that should be protected. I mean, it was impassioned political rhetoric and, you know, impassioned political rhetoric is the core type of speech that the first amendment is designed to protect. I, you know, I, I think decades and decades later, um, we're going to look back and think, good grief, if somebody actually prosecuted him for incitement, which I think the D.C. Attorney General has at least contemplated or threatened. I mean, it's going to be a, it's going to be kind of like prosecuting Eugene Debs for his speech in Canton, Ohio in 1918. No, I'm not saying the president was responsible. I'm not even saying the president was. You know, I mean, you can make all sorts of criticisms about the pre- about the former president. Right. Uh but it, it just is, is, is extremely difficult for me to understand how somebody could possibly think it, it meets the Brandenburg standard. I mean, you go back and look at the Sixth Circuit case when uh, it was alleged that one of his campaign speeches in Louisville, Kentucky met the incitement standard. That was a, a case uh, where he was speaking at a campaign rally and there were a couple people coming in there to protest him. And this I thought was closer. He goes, Get him out, get him out. And so some people then grab these people and forcibly remove them and like beat them up. And Trump's Trump, a candidate Trump said, Don't hurt him, don't hurt him, but don't hurt them." Mm-hmm. And the Sixth Circuit held that's not incitement. Now that to me was closer because he actually said, Get him out, get him out. And that would probably lead somebody to think they're going to be forcibly ejected and might suffer bodily harm. Here, this is political rhetoric. And, I mean, do we want to live in a country that criminalizes political speech, that criminalizes political rhetoric? I mean, it's just not it, – it's its its unfathomable to me, frankly, that, that this would actually meet the incitement standard. I, I just don't see it.
1: What about Rudy Giuliani's previous comments? Uh, it's unclear whether he's talking about actual trial by combat or or legal trial by combat. He said, but if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. Let's have trial by combat. You think that is closer to the line? Or does it not a- actually instruct the audience to do it? Yeah,
2: I mean, anything? trial by combat, I, I think that means litigation, right? I mean, what he's mm-hmm. talking about is... Is uh, vigorous litigation. He's filed a bunch of lawsuits. They, I mean, a lot of people think many of them are frivolous. I mean, there's some, some there's some affidavits of fraud, but there's nothing approaching widespread evidence of fraud, at least that I've seen in the uh, in the affidavits that proves it. So, I mean, uh, now they're talking about holding some of the attorneys accountable who filed some of these lawsuits. I, you know, I don't know, but I no, I don't think that I don't think that rises to the level of Incitement. Um, Now, it may be irresponsible, right? There's a difference between being irresponsible. Could things have been handled much better? Yes, Um, but I I think, honestly, to prosecute Trump for his speech for the for the words, I think you have to bastardize the First Amendment in order to do so.
1: There was, and I know you're familiar with this. I'm sure the the letter from 144 constitutional scholars or experts that uh, derided Trump's First Amendment defense at the trial as legally frivolous, those are their words, Uh, and they argued that all elements under the Brandenburg test were satisfied. They had kind of three arguments in their letter. The first was that um, the First Amendment is meant to protect citizens from the government, uh, limiting their free speech and other rights, and has no real place in in an impeachment trial. but they say even if the First Amendment did not apply to an impeachment trial, it would do nothing to bar conviction, which has to do with whether Trump violated his oath, not whether he should be allowed to say what he, what he said. And then there's the third, which gets to Brandenburg, um, and they, they, they contend that there was an extraordinarily strong argument that defense would even fail in a criminal trial um, uh, because it, they think the speech did meet. The high bar for punishing someone for inciting others to engage in unlawful conduct and you know amongst those and they do say it's like they they, they kind of couch it in the letter by say many of us believe so it's unclear who in the letter might agree with two or three or two or one or two of the arguments instead of the third argument but there are big time first amendment uh scholars on there like floyd abrams like rodney smola um you know smola has been on this podcast before he and I disagreed. Our listeners will remember on the events in Charlottesville. He wrote a book on the events in Charlottesville, which I thought was actually really good at laying out the facts, but there does seem to be a constituency who, who thinks it's a lot closer than, than you do.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of that, you know, I think a lot of that is they hate, they don't like Donald Trump. They they view Donald Trump as an unqualified Television celebrity who had no business being the president of the United States—that's a different question, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people who felt that Trump was not qualified to be president, but he was a president. He was the forty-fifth president of the United States, and and the incitement question. Now, now that you raised a lot in that. Uh, yeah, A lot to unpack there. It's
1: a compound question, which is never good when you're the interviewer. Well, <laughs>
2: you know, what standard is actually used in impeachment proceedings? That that's an interesting question. We, we know we don't really have all that many impeachments uh, if you just look through the through the history of the United States. But to punish uh, and and, off, uh, uh, and to say that that presidents don't have free speech rights, I I think is silly. That's almost arguing for the application of Garcetti v. Ceballos, the public employee free speech case. You know, I read somewhere where somebody somebody said that Garcetti applies. I, I think that's absurd. You know, this is not a typical employer-employee relationship. Well, and also
1: he he was he was speaking as a candidate.
2: In, yeah, he was speaking, he, he was engaging in political speech. I mean, at the at the end of the day. This was political speech. It's political speech that a lot of us didn't like. It's political speech that a lot of us felt was unwise. It's political speech that many of us felt was was imprudent. It's political speech that many of us found offensive and at times bordering on repugnant or maybe even purely repugnant. But guess what? The First Amendment protects a lot of offensive and repugnant speech. And it certainly protects speech that is critical of uh of government um and i I just i i i generally believe that when tempers subside and we look back on this years from now people are going to say that's uh an abuse of the first amendment to say that he should be prosecuted for incitement um i i just i don't see it that third it's that third one that bothers me the, the most. I, I just don't see where it rises to the level. Now, if we want to change the standard in Brandenburg, you know, Judge Posner in his book, Not a Suicide Pact" says that the Brandenburg standard ought to be modified, particularly with regard to online speech that encourages others to engage in acts of terrorism.
1: Well, he says a lot about the First Amendment should be yeah. modified.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I mean, that's, you know, that's a yeah. different question, right? Um, and so I, I I do think that A lot of of the motivation behind a letter like that is politically motivated. There's such vitriolic hatred of Donald Trump that I think that adulterates the pure First Amendment analysis. And and it it goes back to what Nat Hentoff famously wrote, right? Free speech for me, but not for thee. We live in a society, as you know, You've been an incredible advocate for this, and you've and you've, oh, thank you, you. you've detailed it beautifully in numerous shows. Right? People on the right censor people on the left censor, and and, and they and they engage in right wing fascism or left wing fascism. They think that Donald Trump is the epitome of evil, and he needs to be extirpated from the government. And they fear that he could rise again and run again in 2024, and so they want to impeach him. And I think, unfortunately, that corrupts the First Amendment analysis.
1: I I should say this about Nat Hentoff. Um, On Saturday, I'm actually giving the remarks that precede the um, Nat Hentoff Free Speech Award, uh, which is given by the Cato Institute to uh, a student. Um, And so I'm reviewing Nat's life. I wrote his obituary here for fire when he passed in early January of 2017, and a tremendous advocate for free speech. And for our listeners who want to learn more about him, I highly recommend the documentary made about his life called the pleasures of being out of step, which was uh, directed by David Lewis, who I now I believe is at the local NPR affiliate in New York city, but a fantastic documentary about, uh, a free speech life, uh, a life as the associated press wrote. He, uh, I think the headline for the associated press when he died was, uh, Freethinker Nat Hentoff dies at, at ninety one. Now, if that could be the headline for <laughs> my death, I would be only too thrilled. It was also the, that documentary was also the inspiration uh, for my documentary about Ira Glasser. But the the um, Nat Hentoff, won, you know, famously famously critiqued defamation law, uh, and so in that spirit, I want to ask you. You know, defamation law writ large, I don't think he thought it should be a carve-out to the First Amendment. In that spirit, I want to ask you whether the incitement standard is even a standard that we should have in the first place. Uh, I'm very weary personally. It's not to say that I think it should be done away with, but I'm very weary personally of standards that kind of rely on an audience's reaction to speech. So the the fighting word standard and the incitement standard – are difficult standards for me, in particular, the fighting words standard. The incitement standard, I think is a little bit closer to maybe the truth that threat standard, but even still, um, it requires, requires to a certain extent, an analysis of the audience's reaction. And, you know, we like to say the reasonable person, but, um, that, that ultimately ends up being a subjective analysis
2: awesome question you've identified the what's called it's it's referred to under different terminology the hostile audience problem or the heckler's veto problem and essentially what you've correctly identified and that's the tinker uh, substantial disruption test frankly is is also that way the student speech case right we determine whether student speech is protected whether it uh, whether we can reasonably forecast it will cause a substantial disruption of school activities, we look at what other people do.
1: A terrible test. It's, uh, trucks driven right through it since it's been put in place. <laughs> yeah.
2: So I think the where here's where incitement may be appropriate. Um, you know, there are inciting to riot statutes. So there's a case in New York that I use for my class. I think it's called People versus Tolia, where you had a music concert in uh, New York City Park, Central Park. And apparently the volume of the music was extremely loud, so a bunch of neighbors called the police and complained. So the police go uh, to the concert, and there's a speaker on stage, and they tell them to turn down the volume. And the speaker yells out to the crowd, resist the police, F the police, fight the police, right there when the police are right there, and then people immediately start throwing bottles at the police. Now, that was a case where the person was convicted under inciting uh, inciting a riot standard, and the conviction was affirmed by an appellate court because the speaker called for immediate, imminent lawless action, and it was likely to result, and it resulted in actual physical harm to to the officers there. You know, we can create facts factual scenarios where the standard might fit. But what I totally agree with you on is when you base a speech standard on the reaction of listeners, particularly when the speakers are peaceful, it's fertile to abuse. And there's no better example than the Irving Finer case. Irving Finer was a young man. I think it was a war veteran who's speaking. He was a student at Syracuse University. And he gets on a soapbox on a street corner and he starts urging African-Americans to fight for their rights, battle segregation and discrimination. And an angry crowd comes up and they start uh, expressing discontent toward Finer and yelling at him. The police come. They don't protect the speaker, Mr. Finer. They ru- they uh, instead arrest him. And the United States Supreme Court in Finer versus New York affirmed that conviction by a five to four vote. He gets expelled from Syracuse. He'd been accepted to five law schools, and all his law school applications were rescinded. That's the epitome of the hostile audience problem. They yeah, shot that hostile audience problem in my favorite, one of my favorite all time U.S. Supreme Court cases, Edwards versus South Carolina, where 187 African American students were prosecuted for breach of the peace when they marched peaceably from Mount Zion church to the state house in Columbia, South Carolina with signs that said down with segregation and chanting religious hymns. And they arrest them for breaching the peace because there were 200 or 300 onlookers that were not too pleased with what they were doing. And the United States Supreme court in that case, at least did the right thing. They distinguished the finer case and said, this is pristine, First Amendment freedoms in action. This is pure, peaceful freedom of assembly and freedom of petition. And you're absolutely right that when we base speech protection on the hostile audience, it's susceptible to misuse and abuse. And that's absolutely correct. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that, that Brandenburg ought to be abolished because I do think there are situations, narrow albeit, but there can be situations where a speech directly leads to a riot, um, where the speaker is intending that there be a riot. I, I just don't think that the January 6th speech intended for people to do what they did. But some of those people did. I think they that he wanted people to march to the Capitol and to protest loudly, but I, I can't believe, at least I, I don't see the evidence that he actually intended them to do what they did.
1: Some of those hostile audience cases that you were just describing remind me of those early cases involving Jehovah's Witnesses who were often uh, prosecuted as a result of the response that audience had
2: to to their speech. Walter but- Schaplinsky, Szaplinski mm-hmm. versus New Hampshire, 1942. That's the seminal fighting Words case. Walter Szaplinski was really getting harassed by other people because he was criticizing their religion. But, you know, the Szaplinski case itself, which, as you know, really set in part, you know, when Justice Frank Murphy wrote something to the effect that there have always been narrow, unprotected categories of speech. Right. One of these is fighting words. That set up the categorization model of the First Amendment, that there are these certain narrow, unprotected categories but you know Walter Schablenzky himself alleged that it was Marshall Bowring, the guy that arrested him, who was the aggressor, and that it was the other people that he was talking to who were physically messing with him, not vice versa.
1: Yeah, that's always the retort of would-be censors: is that they like to say there. Are, well, of course, there are categories of unprotected speech. Uh, and then they put whatever speech they have issue with <laughs> and figure out a way to fit it into one of those categories. Uh, of course the shouting fire in a crowded theater, uh, is probably the most common of that. Also, of course, uh, forgetting the falsely part of that. So, uh, David, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, like I said, I'm bringing you on to talk about a very narrow carve out.
2: Yeah, I enjoyed event. it very much. And I applaud you for, uh, participating in the Nat Hintoff, you know, pre-speech for, uh, Free speech for me, but not for thee. And his book of the first freedom are two mm-hmm. of my absolute favorite First Amendment books. I, I think they should be required reading for anyone who wants to learn more about the First Amendment. And, and he was Hent- also a great fan of jazz and my personal favorite sport, boxing. The sweet side.
1: <laughs> the the remarkable guy. I'm not a lawyer, so my free speech here heroes tend to be non-lawyers. You know, like um, Nat Hentoff like Ira Glasser, like Aryeh Nair, uh, like Jonathan Rauch, who, of course, wrote Kindly Inquisitors. I mean, my two favorite free speech books ever written uh, are, are Kindly Inquisitors and then Aryeh Nair's Defending My Enemy, which I think is back in print. So I, I had him on the podcast, what, in 2016 or so to discuss it. But I encourage people to rec- uh, check that out. I also encourage people to check out that documentary about Nat Hentoff, which unfortunately, and I emailed the director, David Lewis, about that, is no longer streaming, so you have to buy the DVD, which is, of course, a pain, but it's called The Pleasures of Being Out of Step, and then if you like that, you can check out my documentary about Ira Glasser uh, called Mighty Ira, which is which revisits the Skokie case and some of his other First Amendment work. He wasn't the leader of the ACLU uh, during the Skokie case, but he was at the ACLU during the time and then took it over in the immediate aftermath. Uh, so, David, I think we're going to leave it there. As always, it's, it's good to have you on the show. And next time we're going to talk about a, uh, another, we'll, we'll, we'll work through all the carve outs to the first amendment with you.
2: Uh, I'd love to, I'd love to talk point. about fighting words. Actually. I just wrote a law review article that was published on the fighting words doctrine being alive and well in the lower courts. Really? And is I it I think the fighting words doctrine is dead, but it's being used quite a bit by lower courts to sustain disorderly conduct convictions. Yeah. We'll have to get you on to talk about that for sure. Because I, I'm not aware of that. You know.
1: I know it's kind of a dead letter, at least, or it has been for 60, 70 years uh, as it relates to the Supreme Court. But it's interesting and kind of shocking and to, to hear it's, it's not a dead letter in the lower court. So we'll get you on to talk about that. But in the meantime, David, thanks again.
2: Thanks so much.
1: That was Assistant Professor of Law at Belmont University and Fire Legal Fellow David L. Hudson, Jr., this podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. You can learn more about So to Speak by following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash free talk or liking us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. Email feedback comes to so to speak at the fire.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we take reviews at Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. They help us attract new listeners to the show. And as I say always, I thank you all for listening.